This episode of the PC Perspective Podcast is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash PCPer and using promo code PCPer at checkout. Hey folks, before we get started tonight, just a quick message. We know there's been a lot of changes. We know that some new faces, uh, some different roles, uh, and we appreciate your feedback, uh, and we hope you keep giving it to us so that we can improve. And part of that feedback I received last week, and it was genuinely well-intentioned feedback, was that I'm no fun. Just It's like, <laughs> it's like NPR computer talk, and I appreciate that, and I'm going to try. I can't promise anything. I'm really going to try. But in that spirit... Oh, shit. <laughs> Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast, episode 521, November 7th, 2018. Ken was not prepared for that, and neither were any of us. I'm nice. sorry, I didn't tell anyone. I wanted the genuine reaction. Oh, that was so, beautiful. <laughs> I'll clean it up after the show. Going to clean it out of my MacBook keyboard that is prone to jamming. Oh, Don't worry. Keyboard. Don't worry. We're good. We're good. So, well, I can't hear out you of know, my I, I was really, anymore. I was really hoping we'd go for the NPR thing because <clears throat> I've been practicing my NPR voice. And so today oh. at 1230, we'll be discussing the things that mean a lot to me. And now, some light jazz. Listen, listen. I was half expecting Sam Kennison breakout. <laughs> I knew it wasn't be, it wasn't going to be good because he was hiding something over there. Yeah, I was not expecting to be deafened. Oh, all right. Well, like I said, I'm Jim Tannis, and joining us today, we also have the rest of the crew. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm NPR Josh Walrath. Uh, I'm Alan Malventano. Oh, oh, whoops! Damn it! You talked over me, Alan. Uh, who's that guy? Not- I'm Sebastian. Eek. Yeah, and I'm Alan over here. Hi, Alex. And there's Alex intruding onto Sebastian's turf. I'm sorry. Confused. And covered in glitter. And Ken Addison. Shell shocked. <laughs> My ears. I want to see a slow frame by frame of Ken's reaction to when that thing went off. I don't. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, folks. Uh, we record every uh, Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can join us live at pcpro.com slash live. Uh, we have the ch- IRC chat, and uh, we try to interact with you as best we can through that. Uh, or you can catch us after the fact, pcpro.com slash podcast, where you can watch all the shows. Um, to let us, uh, to be notified when we go live so you don't miss stuff like that because Ken's going to probably edit that out of the final episode. But uh, oh, this you episode dare. is never don't, going out. This will never air the lost episode. But uh, head to pcpro.com slash subscribe where you can enter your email. It's a plain text email. We, we send it out just before we go live just to remind you. And uh, that way you never miss anything fun. Uh, also, you can join us uh, at patreon.com slash pcpro to help us do uh, what we do here. We've changed the graphic this week. To more care, uh, more accurately reflect the situation here, we've got uh, someone fading away, and then some sort of pervert hiding behind the couch. <laughs> that's, that's, that's nice placement. So if, uh, consider consider joining uh, joining us there to help us hire a graphic designer. Uh, one of the things that Patreon helps us do is our mailbag, and uh, we mentioned last week that we were looking for questions to get that started again. Uh, we've got probably seven questions now for Alan. Um, 
and uh, probably room for a couple more. So if he'll be doing it, uh, he'll be recording that tomorrow. So please uh, get those questions in. You can leave a comment on the most recent uh, YouTube video for the mailbag. You can send a, twi- a tweet to our PC per handle or to Alan directly um, or just email. Just leave a comment on this video, whatever. Just get it to us, and we'll try to get uh, Alan to answer that for you. And, of course, finally, we have joshtech.com, which is our own merchandise store where you can find uh, all of our favorite slogans, logos. Uh, we've got beautiful mugs uh, with uh, Josh Tech there and the steering wheel, racing wheel, I guess. Uh, all the purchases there. You get something cool. We get a little cut. Helps us out here. Appreciate it. Uh, so check that out, joshtech.com. All right, let's jump right into the review. I'm going to be finding glitter in this keyboard for months to come. <laughs> months. We got compressed air and vacuum cleaners. The we'll chat was saying, oh, no, it's just confetti. Don't be fooled. There there's is glitter. glitter. There's glitter. There's glitter. I did see there's some glistening off of Jim's forehead as well, I noticed. Okay. Yeah. He's shiny like a vampire. Um but uh, joining us this week, uh, of course, Sebastian Peake, one of our uh, reviewers, uh, and he's got a couple reviews for us. So uh, the first up is some uh, new all-in-one water coolers from Corsair. That's right. And not too long ago, I did the uh, H100 Pro, I believe it was, review, which was kind of the new design for Corsair's coolers after just some incremental improvements for the last few years. A little bit of a different design for the radiator itself, kind of a different aesthetic, but some different fans, revised mounting hardware. Of course, these all now support AM4 out of the box. This one is a little bit different still, and this is the H100 or 115i Platinum. Now, the Platinum. I am assuming is because this is the extra special deluxe version, which not only has RGB lighting effects on the uh, pump assembly, but also the fans. The ML Pro RGB 140mm PWM fans, which uh, I'm trying to remember the actual bearing type these use, because somehow I missed that on these specifications. But they're very, very, very quiet fans and they also have multi-zone led lighting built into them so if you notice uh from the pictures or i guess there's one picture i took of them in action towards the bottom of the review there uh each of the fans has four different lights which can shine different colors at any given time i left it on the uh, default spiral rainbow effect but anyhow the the takeaway for this cooler was the revised hardware feels nicer. It's a little bit stronger. Gone is the plastic backplate if you're using an Intel like 1155, 5X, whatever socket. You're ac- you actually get a metal backplate now. All of the hardware felt just a little bit better. And this thing is extremely quiet. The... The benchmarks I ran with my standard test bench that I use for enclosure testing and coolers here is an i7-7700K, which is an extremely hot processor. And mine, I don't know if it's sample-specific or what, but mine has always just been toasty. So it's a very good test of coolers, even at, at without overclocking. And routinely, I get warmer temps with enclosure testing from my CPU than I do from the GPU that I use. And temperatures were, is, were fine. Is, is that, that some was, sweet... Sweet feedback coming back in, in, in your your setup, or or do you have crickets chirping in the background? 
I think it's kettle. Don't, it's, don't you mind? I mean, I like crickets. It's very I relaxing. It's I think it's actually my squeaking, uh, whatever the part is that rotates on my furnace, which is apparently running right now. That's uh, yeah. a fan. That's a fan. <laughs> You well, some, you, you got some, some Corsair ones. Yeah, you should yeah. replace that fan with one of those Corsair ones. <laughs> it's just need the oil. Damn it, it's not everybody, much everybody needs an RGB furnace. I need a magnetic levitation bearing like these Corsair fans have in my furnace. Is is the noise too distracting? Should I wait it out? No, just just keep going. I can just walk over there and hit the switch or pull the fuse out. Uh, That's not how I? you're supposed to. We're talking about performance. We're talking about uh, cooler performance. Now, I compared it briefly just against the H100i Pro that I had reviewed, and actually, the numbers were not that impressive compared to the its smaller counterpart. But what I determined during the testing was that they they seem to be favoring silence over performance by these by their default presets. You can customize everything. I just ran with three of the default presets, and it also has a fanless. Fanless mode, but I did not uh, benchmark with that. It's fanless only at idle, essentially. So the, the the biggest, if you're looking at the charts, the biggest gap you're going to see is when you go up to the extreme preset, which is where you really get into like the full capabilities of these coolers. And so with the pump running on full and the fans actually able to hit their maximum RPMs, this thing was five decibels quieter than the H100i. So, like, the highest I got was still just under 40 decibels at full load, all cores, for an extended run. So, this is a very, very quiet cooler. It's 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 not as quiet as a giant tower air cooler can be, but as far as liquid coolers go, when you have to factor in the pump noise and the fan noise, and I, I measure equidistant between the two of them on an open test bench, and it was still only hitting 39.4 decibels. So very, very, very quiet. In the end, though, uh, I had to... I mean, the the, the, LED, the LEDs, the RGB effects are cool if you're into that sort of thing. I know a lot of people have kind of RGB fatigue at this point, but it's there, and that makes it a more premium part. And without the, the new fans, which is like plain fans this would probably be a little bit more affordable but as it ships it has a 169.99 msrp which is steep so my takeaway you know was, there, there's really something here we're overlooking if you can scroll back up yes and down there stop you, your photography is still on point oh absolutely thank you josh thanks josh you're, you're welcome it's thank embarrassing you. i mean that composition the 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 bokeh the the focus it's it's just i mean you, it's you all, can it's see all the, natural you, know you can see the rgb it's... block just sitting behind it you know like anxiously like like a, a lover in the distance anxiously awaiting the return of of the open arms and and jim's I don't know where you're, big popper with this <clears throat> Josh, are we done? I uh, <laughs> we, we probably want some boudoir photos done at some point. The judge, can we just, the can we judge just cut warned from you about before this. the furnace noise started to about now. Um, you know, I'm proud of that shot, Josh. I'm glad you brought it up. Let's talk about it. Um, I'm using yeah. my Nikon 40 millimeter micro lens on my uh, uh, 
5100 you know what's nice you can, you can still see the fins the cooling fins behind the 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 nicely blurred fan blades it's she just is a, a, a fast shutter speed josh and yeah, a, a wide open uh aperture just to, to bring in the light to uh enhance that natural bokeh effect are we and, gonna like uh, having start putting subtitles on all our pictures for all the camera settings I'm just listen. I'm just baffled. Josh isn't going all double rainbow on that fan picture. So, so Sebastian, the the, the uh, software was that easy to configure? Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you asked that question, Jim, because Corsair is using IQ software for everything now. That at one point, I think was just an optional thing with certain products. Now it's everything. So it shows up in the dashboard. You can click on it. You can adjust all of your presets as far as performance very quickly and then once you have that tuned you can go in and change the colors to your heart's content i left it at defaults but i've scrolled through and i tried it a few different patterns and this is actually basically the same package as far as the fans and the color options that i saw with their most recent crystal series case the 280x you're getting essentially the same fans as the 280x but with higher static pressure and all of those associated customizable color effects so this would be a great choice to add to a case like that 280x and if you have room for 280 millimeter all-in-one liquid cooler and you're thinking of going the liquid cooler route this is the quietest one that i have personally tested but you do need space for a 280 and 169 is expensive so you're going to have to want those rgb effects because otherwise they certainly have options available uh, from the previous gen, they're a lot less expensive that do not have RGB fans. Can can you scroll back up to that picture? I have one more comment oh, to make. Please? Oh, oh the, the, this picture. Okay, yes, sir. Yes. Sebastian. <laughs> what? You are the Robert Maplethorpe of PC hardware. The, the who? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Have you never Swing heard of miss. Robert Maplethorpe? I, I was talking over you. I'm sorry, Josh. R- Robert Maplethorpe of PC Hardware. I still don't know who that is, which I apologize oh, geez. for. Oh, oh, just just nod, and smile. Oh. Okay, well, never mind. All right, well that. I guess it. I'm I'm aging oh. myself. Yeah. Weird. Did you have any frustration with the extra cables? Because <laughs> to get the RGBs on the uh, the header there. I mean, there's significantly more cabling than normal. There is, and I have used a couple of these types of all-in-ones lately, so I didn't even think about it. But you do have, like, four cables coming off of the fans instead of two because there's a separate cable for the PWM fan header and for the RGB lighting. But, you know, if you're kind of binding it all up and putting it behind the case, of like, behind the motherboard backplate anyway... It didn't really add any bulk of okay. any significance. These are thin cables. All right. Well, so good enough for a silver award. That's the Corsair H115i RGB Platinum 280 millimeter liquid all-in-one cooler. Thanks, Sebastian. Next up, we got oh, a you're review uh, from Ken. Uh, this was uh, a pair of products, uh, video capture products, right? Yeah. So I actually, I think I picked these for my pick of the week back over the summer, but we finally got our time to work through a couple of software bugs and post the full review. These are the Avermedia Live Gamer Ultra and Live Gamer 4K capture cards. 
So there are two different units here. There's the Live Gamer 4K, which is the PCI Express by 4 card you see there with the uh, nice, nicely designed shroud on it with a bunch of triangles cut into it. And that's actually a pretty good-looking card. And then there's the Live Gamer Ultra, which is the USB-C connected external device there on the bottom. The capabilities of these differ a bit. The PCI Express card can do 4K60 and more importantly, 4K60 with HDR, Ooh. which is the first time I've seen actual HDR capture on any consumer grade capture card. There's high end studio equipment that's thousands of dollars or you know stuff like that, but this is kind of the first thing targeted at gamers. So you have your HDMI in, you have a pass-through, well, also pass-through uh, HDR to your TV, so you can have a sort of zero input lag experience, so you don't have to game through the capture window, which would add a little bit of latency. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's RGB lighting, of course. Yay, more RGB. Uh, on, on the top, easily turned off in software if you're not into that. But, I mean, it's a subtle effect, and everything has to have RGB these days. Uh, the... External device will only do 4K30, no HDR. However, it does have a neat trick where it will still pass through HDR. So if you have your Xbox One X plugged into this and then it's plugged into your PC, you can still enable HDR to view on your TV. You just won't be able to capture HDR. Oh, that's good. So you don't have to downgrade your sort of visual experience to capture your gameplay to stream it or record it. Uh, The software component of this is Avermedia's Rec Central. Uh, which I haven't used in a couple of years, but it's actually a pretty nice piece of software now. Uh, you can do things like you can obviously record, you can stream to Twitch, you can overlay a webcam on top of a video feed, so you can kind of do just, if you want to do a very simple two-shot stream, which is you over gameplay, you don't need exploit, you don't need uh, OBS, you don't need anything like that, you can just use this included application to do it. Uh yeah, so, I mean, right there we had capture from an Xbox One X and a webcam lo- hooked up locally to PC. And, I mean, the captures look good. The Like the default encoding, uh, it uses GPU encoding uh, to get to the higher frame rates. Uh, <laughs> the playback looks like butt on the uh, stream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, YouTube. But uh, in this case, we're using uh, NVENC with, a, I think, like a GTX uh, 1070, I think, mm-hmm. uh, to do the hardware HEVC, H264, H265 encoding. How much overhead does that add? Uh, virtually none. If you're watching the video stream, there's some stuttering in this playback. Yeah, but go go not, watch the YouTube yeah. video on, yeah. on the actual YouTube page, and it's good. And if you have a client that supports HDR, you can actually view the HDR capture. Uh, but there so, was an issue with that. Yeah, yeah, we ran into a bit of an issue. It's actually an NVENC issue. Uh, because I was emailing Avermedia back and forth on this, where the outputted file would be 3840 by 2176, so it wouldn't actually conform to 3840 by 2160, you know, 4K UHD resolution. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you just uploaded it straight to YouTube, it would never process 4K. It would only top out at 1080p and Ah. never actually load the HDR metadata. Now, it could have just been our specific test configuration, some weird incompatibility because, I mean, Avermedia has had this work. You should just be able to directly dump your files to YouTube and get processed as HDR. What I had to do is I had to import into Premiere, uh, sort of scale the image up. It was actually capturing the correct amount of pixels. You just kind of had to, you know, like, 
it, back in the day, if you use like VDub with a direct stream copy to just kind of change an aspect mm-hmm. uh, of the metadata, it's kind of like that. Yeah, you're, but you're literally getting rid of one scan line. Yeah. Because each one of those in MPEG 4 is 16 lines. I think so. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it, it was just a, it's just a weird bug that's been actually well documented on the NVIDIA forums with this specific encoder. But and from what I read, NVIDIA doesn't look like they're interested in fixing it. I saw yeah, one no, comment. It's, it's been a thing for yeah, a while. They were like, look, this is still within the spec, and if there's a player that can't play it, that's the player's fault. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, once we got that figured out, we got into Premiere. I could export it with saving all the HDR10 metadata and it uploaded to YouTube fine. Uh, the best part about this is the USB adapter is 250 bucks. Oh, and actually, I forgot to mention one of the cool things about the Live Gamer Ultra, the USB one. It uses UVC, so the driverless mm-hmm. emulating a webcam standard. So you can just plug it in, and any app that has a webcam support will be able to see it. Nice. Or you can use the you can still use the Avermedia software if you want the additional control. You want just like a nice recording app to use. You want to be able to change some stuff. So you actually have that flexibility, but you don't need to install any drivers to use it, which is always a really good thing for video capture hardware. But two hundred fifty bucks, it's a little pricier than a lot of those boxes, but it's the only external box I've seen that can pass through HDR. So if you have an HDR display, you're going to want something like this. But for 50 bucks more, if you have the PCIe slot, you can step up to the Live Gamer 4K and get 4K 60 capture plus HDR, and it's it's a really compelling product. I know we looked at the Elgato 4K capture card probably about a year ago, and that was 4K 60, but no HDR. Yeah, for uh, I think 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. Now they did add HDR pass through to that card through a firmware update, but it still doesn't record HDR. So yeah, I mean, Avermedia has a leg up here. Uh, they, question, question from the chat is, is it Mac compatible? I, I imagine referring to the external one. Uh, I believe there's a Rec Central for Mac, so probably. Okay. I haven't tested it. All right. Uh, so 299 for the PCIe version with 4K60 HDR, 250 for the USB version with just 4K30. Yeah. It's amazing how far capture devices have come since we built all of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for that, Ken. Oh, well, Ken, you're you're you have all this stuff here. Do you remember how much those Black Magic capture cards ran when you first got them, and how bad they were? How bad they were? Kept, <laughs> how poorly they yeah. performed? Kept overheating. Yeah, they still do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Isn't there a, a massive, fan and a duct inside that box? Does it, to, uh, does yes. This, case fan. This machine has a about a foot long piece of cardboard and a ducted fan over the <laughs> capture card because. Yep. If it gets above, what, 76 degrees ambient in here, it starts dropping inputs. Yeah. They just go away. Awesome. Yeah. Until, yeah, you, the, until the, you bounce the box. Are their, their support told us the thermal throttle was like 80 Fahrenheit. Yeah, uh, it was 84. Like, or like 84C? <laughs> no, yeah. 84F. What? What? <laughs> what? What kind of chip has that kind of a problem? It's like, uh, it's it's like room apparently temperature. they're ASICs. <laughs> yeah. Need that ice cube cooling, right, Sebastian? <laughs> All right. No next, comment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we got a, another review from uh, Chris Koch. Uh, we've got two uh, Steel Series gaming mice: the Rival 650, which is a wireless mouse, and the Rival 710, which is a wired version. Uh, surprisingly, you know, as he, he mentions in the review, and I was as I was reading this over, you'd think the 710 would be better than the 650, and they do have unique feature sets. But uh, he says basically the 650's got the more compelling. Uh, compelling features first of all it does have the rgb so that's uh that's the three in a row for the rgb got the rgb hat truly trick. compelling 
Yeah. Uh, Truly. It's got adjustable uh, weight. It comes in at, uh, I think it was 80 grams, and you can add up to 32 more with uh, adjustable weights. Uh, just to give you that right feel, uh, it's got uh, control, you know buttons for various mapping, and um, they, they also use a uh, haptic feedback feature, which seemed kind of neat, where you program a button, click, uh, so like one of your dedicated buttons, and then it starts a countdown timer. And that, that you can configure. And then when that timer's up, it vibrates. And so if you're playing like uh, a MOBA or, you know, strategy games where you've got cooldowns, right? Ah, quake item response. Or any, yeah, any, <laughs> anything where there's going to be a, a, a time uh, limit that you're going to be aware of, you can configure it to trigger a button or configure it so that when you trigger a button, it gets that timer, timer and you don't have to look down at the mouse to, to know that your whatever it is is ready. But it is limited to one button and just a time-based uh, haptic feedback, so you can't tie it to in-game events and things like that. Um, but uh, overall, a very uh, good review from uh, from Chris on the Steel Series. The 650, the wireless version is one hundred and twenty dollars. The Rival Seven Ten is a hundred dollars. Uh, and there's a custom software too that comes with it uh, that he says is very easy to use, allows you to program the. Uh, the lighting effects on the 710. There's a little screen that oh, gives yeah, you. Oh yeah, this is one. Yeah, get, you yeah. can put a custom display on there, and he's, you can put like an animated GIF, or you can tie it to compatible games where it will show you your life bar, your ammo counter. Seems neat. In my, you know, from my perspective, I'm thinking, you know, why would you be looking mouse. down at your mouse to see what your ammo level is, your health level? So, uh, you know, and he mentions that too. It's like it's it's neat. It's an interesting concept. Uh, Potential usability is questionable, uh, but something there to, to play with. It's just that you have to – it's a very low resolution and you have to stretch it out and then it displays at the right aspect ratio on the device. So so uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, set of mice. He still says, you know, Logitech has probably got a lock on this market in terms of like the best price to uh, performance uh, for the gaming mice series. But he says if you're a SteelSeries fan uh, – and and or you just want something different from a Logitech product or somebody else? Uh, it's a good one to check out. So that's the Rival Six Hundred and Fifty and the Rival Seven Ten uh, Steel Series Gaming Mice. And we've got another review from Sebastian. Uh, it's a case review, which is uh, just his bread and butter. <laughs> you know, for a minute I thought you said we've got another Patreon sponsor. Uh, that no. I'm going to read out out loud. We don't have that set. Or we we've just switched that over. And I'm not. I don't. I left my phone over there. Mister Mister Smoky Treats just gave three dollars a month. I don't know if I have the PC Pro one set up on this. To the Patreon. Thank you, Mister Smoky Treats. (laughs) Is that your cat? No, my cat. Oh, she left. Never mind. She has good taste. No. Yeah, Um, she's smart. Oh. But uh, so, uh, Sebastian, why don't you tell us about this Bit Bit Phoenix Nova tempered glass case? Okay. First thing. About the cases, it's very affordable. As cases go these days, this is MSRP of fifty six ninety nine. Wait, 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 wait. Yes, Josh. Wait. It does. Cup holder compatible. It's it's, it's got an optical drive area. <laughs> it, Josh, you're stealing Dude. my thunder, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. What the, what, what the case? Ahead review kind of became was like this is kind of like an old retro style <laughs> case inside of a new case shell so you've got 
some pretty modern looking styling and it's got of course the tempered glass side panel this is the nova tg and the tg josh the tg stands for tempered glass i i thought it stood for oh no 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 gargantuan but yes it has a it has an external five and a quarter inch bay but what's interesting is when you open it up, there's actually three bays in there. You only have access to one. So See, dude, that is, that's that's ripping the cl- customer off. Dremel. They need to have access to all three bays. Solves all. When you have access to all three bays, you just don't have external access to all Ugh. three bays. <gasps> oh. You're going to have to pick a top bay and a bottom bay. And... I, I mean, I'm fine with it. Think about it. I can put both of my Bigfoot drives in there and have a five and a quarter inch optical Me and my five and a quarter inch hard drives. Because when I'm listening to optical media, I want two Bigfoots on uh, <laughs> You want as much vibration as possible. Exactly. But uh, if you, I mean, looking at the interior pictures of this case, you can tell, like, this is a, this is a little bit of a retro design, to say the least. And if you look at the back, those are, in fact, below that 120 millimeter fan those are punch outs oh wow yeah they're not expansion slot covers whoa when you punch them out they're gone forever and it does not come with any that was my biggest gripe with the case well to be honest as soon as we punch any of them out be they replaceable or not they're gone forever i don't think i've seen that on a case in 15 years I mean, are there any other? I've, I've seen a few years and years ago that use that style, but is there are there any other cases shipping? It's that, a fifty dollars oh, case. Tons, <laughs> tons. There's so many inexpensive cases. Case these days. Yeah, that's no. true. In the fifty or so cases I reviewed in the last three and a half or four years, I have only seen it on like two, and they were definitely in this like fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Did they just find tooling and then slap a tempered side panel on it, like tooling they already had for a case from the nineties? I'm thinking the tooling. Now, the one thing that kind of uh, I, I was thinking that it was it was an older interior shell, but the the cages are at least new. Like the drive cages, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have seen the the drive cages with those slide in plastic trays that are yeah. toolless. You know, 15 years ago, so that that's a little bit of an upgrade. Was that Antec uh, who started that with the whole toolless installs for drives? I think so. Antec was NZXT one had it pretty early too, but it wasn't a great implementation. You remember the Antec drive bays that you would like essentially suspend it in elastic? Yep, those were stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no vibration. Yeah. One other Isolated. thing. Uh, speaking of speaking of hard drives, it it has the room for it, but for some reason, it it the the cage for the SSDs is almost as big as the one for the hard drives. You only have space for three hard drives. It would have been nice to see like that fourth hard drive and maybe only have a couple of SSD slots because you can always put them behind the motherboard, especially because this design, the rear panel uh, cover panel is bowed out significantly by design. It's got a, (laughs) a bowed out uh, section almost as big as the side panel. So there's tons of room for cable mess there was almost no additional cabling in my build behind the motherboard tray, but even if you're not careful, like this back cover goes on without any problems. So, build process. Believe you me, easy. I'm I'm not very careful. I'll stick a two-week-old ham sandwich behind my case just because dampens the noise. Yeah, but and wouldn't stuff. it smell bad with the heat back there? 
I mean, you've got to you've got to weigh every option, Josh. I mean, yes, you know what? it's an I've, easy I've sandwich got, repository. I've got two but... teenage boys, and I swear that they have they have bought stock in Old Spice body spray. <laughs> <laughs> and so having a little earthy ham sandwich rotting in the back of your computers is is it's a bit of a relief, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, it's, it's a wonderful Moscow. thing. It's edgy, Josh. Mm. But uh, temps and, and noise uh, acceptable. Surprisingly good, considering you've got a solid front panel. I mean, the, it is vented on the sides and the bottom, but. And let's see here. What were the actual numbers? The numbers were kind of towards the bottom, but they're not outrageous. I mean, you're talking about within a couple of degrees, within two to three degrees of the uh, Be Quiet, Be Quiet Silent Base 601, which was another case with like the the solid front panel and the same kind of venting. So this one did not uh, come with the same level of like uh, front intake. As the be quiet, so you you could get it a little bit higher uh, airflow, but it, it's fine. The, mm-hmm. There was no significant thermal issues, and it actually was not bad as far as noise goes, which is nice when you consider this has that tempered glass side panel. And there's no insulation on this thing at all. And the metal is is fairly thin. It's not so thin that you can you know take the case out of square in your bare hands. It does feel quite solid. But it's a very lightweight case, and I was not expecting noise levels to be anywhere near that Be Quiet case. So uh, overall, because of that and because of the fact that you can actually use an optical drive if you still want to use one of those, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's got room mm-hmm. for the stuff that you've already got. That was my takeaway. Mm-hmm. And it's only 55 bucks. Like right now it's on Amazon for about 54 It's dropped a couple dollars, so... Definitely in that price range, I thought it was deserving of a PC perspective gold award. All right. Well, do you have, do you have to send this case back? I, unknown, unknown. They have not contacted <laughs> me about a return yet. But you know what? The case review—they're looking at the shipping and saying, "Ah, keep it." Mm, yeah, no. All right. Well, that, uh, so a great, uh, great case for uh, optical drive lovers and and budget builders. All right. Uh, so thanks for that, Sebastian. You, you guys and, seem so festive there. I mean, I'm looking at the. Well, Ken's been <laughs> dropping videos. glitter on me every time the camera cuts away. Yeah, so yeah I noticed there, there was uh, <laughs> there was some stuff on your head there. Uh-huh. Jim. Yeah, it's that's mm. okay. I deserve it. <laughs> I deserve it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's do the news. Uh, oh, you have an ad. Oh, but wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So we're gonna we've uh, we're gonna take a, a moment here to. Uh, to thank our sponsor, and uh, we'll be right back. Party poppers. This episode of the PC Perspective Podcast is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper's mattresses are designed by humans for humans. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Casper's breathable, breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And they're not just a mattress company. Casper offers a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. And Casper's mattresses are made in the USA. Buying a Casper mattress is easy, too. Just order online, and in a few days, your mattress will be delivered to your door in a compact box. 
Move the box into your bedroom, open it up, and your mattress will expand out to its full size, ready for you to enjoy a great night's sleep. Plus, there's free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. But best of all is Casper's risk-free 100-day trial. We spend one-third of our lives on a mattress, so it's important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing. That's why Casper gives you 100 nights to try it out and see if it's the mattress for you. And if it's not, just let them know, and they'll return it for you for a full refund. But I don't think you're really going to need the full 100 days to experience the benefits of Casper. My family has been sleeping on Casper mattresses for over three years. After getting married, my wife and I went through several mattresses, but we just couldn't find one that was right for both of us. But then one night, long before I joined the crew here, I was listening to the PC Perspective podcast and I heard about some company that was selling mattresses online. That's different, I thought. But with a 100-night risk-free trial, I said, well, let's give it a shot. A few days later, a box about the size of a mini-fridge showed up at our door. And although I couldn't believe a king-size mattress was fitting, could actually fit in there, we got the box into our bedroom, opened it up, and watched in amazement as this giant mattress expanded right in front of us. My wife and I were still kind of on the fence about this whole thing, but once we got in bed that first night, we immediately knew this mattress was the one. Since that day, we both sleep better, and for me personally, the Casper mattress's supportive memory foam has eliminated the back pain I regularly woke up with on our old mattresses. We love our Casper so much that when our son graduated from a crib to a bed, we got another Casper for him, and then just last year, we upgraded our guest room bed to a Casper too. We couldn't be happier with our Casper mattresses, and we have a deal to help you try one out for yourself. Podcast listeners can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash PCPer and using code PCPer at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash PCPer using code PCPer at checkout. We thank Casper for their continued support of the PC Perspective podcast. And we're back. Thanks so much to Casper for uh, their support of the show. And we'll jump right into the news. Uh, so uh, a couple couple uh, processor stories this week. Uh, uh, we got some news from Intel on their clap. Their <laughs> yeah. Okay. How did I not pick that up yet? <laughs> yeah. So the, the, clap. the Xeon Cascade Lake Advanced Performance Platform not glued together, right? No. Um, here's the theme for this week. Can I interest but you in some chiplets? It burns like glue. No. Go ahead, Ken. <laughs> I'm just generally not sure how to go on. Uh, so this is kind of ahead of supercomputing, the supercomputing conference next week. Uh, Intel took unveiled the new Cascade Lake Advanced Performance. So this is a new tier of Xeon. They are using a multi-chip package to hit 48 cores in a single processor. Uh, these are targeted at two-socket systems, so we're talking 96 cores per server mm-hmm. uh hyper threaded so a, a many 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 core design uh so as we've alluded to intel's kind of they made a lot of stink about epic being glued together mm-hmm. so now yeah, going to multi-chip package uh definitely during the press briefing they were getting some questions There's glitter in my eye <laughs> if ah. that's that's not glitter yeah uh i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> Intel's response to their glued comments is that they weren't inherently saying that multi-chip, multi-die, multi-chip designs were bad. They're saying that the way they were being implemented resulted in performance inconsistencies Mm -hmm. and that uh, Cascade Lake AP improves upon this by using Intel's UPI, which is the successor to QPI, 
for that, which they traditionally use for multi CPU uh, communication in a multi socket system for both. They're using UPI for both uh, chip to chip within a single package as well as the two sockets. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a known interface that performs well that doesn't have some of the, some of the same downfalls as infinity fabric in theory. Yeah. In theory. I mean, that's kind of all the detail they gave about it. They gave some numbers comparing it to Epic, uh, in Linpack and, uh, one other benchmark, but stream triad. Yeah. Kind of take it with a grain of salt until we see some actual independent performance numbers from this stuff. But it's certainly an answer to the 32-core and, as we'll talk about, the 64-core Epic that was announced earlier this week. Josh, you have any thoughts on this? Well, you know, I'm thinking <clears throat> you'd think that they'd have QPI and then move up one other letter and have RPI, but then the basketball people would be really pissed That's off. True. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not saying that large monolithic dies are dead. But if they want to keep margins up there with the kind of competition that we're going to be seeing in the next year, large monolithic dies are going to be hard to sell at the price points that people want to see margins at, especially namely at Intel. And so going with a multi-chip module is is it's pretty obvious because, you know, Intel has had issues with their 10 nanometer process. I mean, they've, they've kind of had to switch around things with their 14 nanometer plus and plus plus to make things go faster, but they're sacrificing some density as well. And everything really is a trade-off. I mean, if you want more performance, you want more cores, you're going to have to make trade-offs in your design with the tools that we currently have. And that's namely process technology. And it has slowed down. Moore's Law is... It's not quite dead, but it's it's kind of dead. I mean, we're still getting some density gains, but in terms of actual process, uh, you know, transistor switching performance, we've kind of come to a standstill. I mean, 28 nanometer stuff, 32 nanometer stuff, we were hitting around the three and a half to four gigs space. Um, 22 FinFET, it kind of went up in, in the base clock, but how far you could push it actually went down and the same thing with 14 nanometer. And now we're, we're looking at seven and, and 10 nanometer stuff from these guys and they've got to rethink how they're actually going to do this. And it seems like smaller chips in, in, in multi-chip packages will allow them to continue to increase performance, especially how many threads that they are throwing at any kind of problem while not, you know, going past 400 watts TDP. Now, I think this uh, is is this one that they're talking about. Is this the 350 watt TDP? I don't think part? we have a number on that. That someone I've seen. was was quoting that that mm. this 48 core part was possibly a 350 watt TDP, and it looks unit. like it might not actually have hyper threading uh, enabled. Yeah. 
There's mm. there's mm. really not a whole lot of detail on this. I mean, yeah, just it's kind of announced it's unfortunate. It. They're they're going to talk more about Cascade Lake and Cascade Lake AP at Supercomputing next week. So there should be a lot more details about this. Well, wasn't there a? But it's, been a- it's almost like they wanted to get out before a certain announcement this week. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, shock and awe. So Josh, you touched on you, you touched on the lack of hyperthreading or possible lack of hyperthreading. Now, well, Ken did, but I'll, yeah, well, I'll go ahead and work so, on it. So now we're moving into these multi-chip modules, and we're spreading things out. And how many exploits are we up to now regarding hyper-threading? They got three big ones, I think? Uh, four with port smash. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. yeah, there's, there's, you know, the speculative execution and speculative reads, and uh, hyper-threading, not so much. It's, it's more to do with, uh, you know, cache lines, being accessed by a non-secure thread that, you know, you can do it speculatively, but you can't do it when you actually need to, you know, actually access the data. And so that's, that's kind of the, the whole specter thing. And I'm not talking about the speculation has lower, uh, administering, you know, privileges than, than, you know, actually accessing data. And so that's how they got around a lot of that stuff. But in terms of hyper-threading, uh, it's not as big of a security risk. It's just all that is is, is throwing data at, at the execution units that are out of sync with another thread. Yeah, and I'm, actually I'm talking about utilizing the more of those. But, but they just they can't read that data when it's in the pipeline versus when they're doing you know, speculative lookups in, in cache where they can. So, yeah, hyperthreading, not as big of a security threat. I think what hyperthreading does more than anything is you're pushing up the TDPs because you're utilizing more of those parts, uh, more of the CPU at, at, at a higher level than you would if it was just a single thread instead of hyperthreading. And so they're looking at so dense chips that if you enable hyperthreading, I mean, your, your TDP is just going to, go through the roof because they're just being used so much. And you kind of look at what arm is doing. I mean, they're not even looking at, at hyperthreading. They're looking at wider cores. You know, they, they have, you know, four bigs, four smalls and we can handle eight threads. And if the OS is really, really efficient, it can do a lot of the background stuff on these low power cores while the high performance stuff needs to be using these big cores. And Intel is not really at that point with their monolithic cores. Hmm. So it's it's an interesting balance uh and you know disabling hyperthreading you are in in theory if you've got a 48 wide chip and you can hyperthread that. Okay, again, this is theory that's not actually talking about a product. Mm. But if you've got a server and you've got 48 threads available to it, would it really be a good idea to jump that up to 84 in many workloads? Because you've still got memory issues, you've got you've got I.O. issues. How much is too much? And I think this is the point where Intel is kind of looking at it and saying, okay, where's our workload? Where's our TDPs? How complex we need to make things. And it's a big question because we're not going any faster in terms of clock speed. But we are going really wide and we're starting to eat a lot of power. So yeah, what do you do from here? So, so yeah. I mean, actually, the chat is kind of pointing this out. And this is an interesting thing. 
No Alexa. No Alexa. I'm waiting for that light to go off. Mm-hmm. Would you like to chat no. with an Alexa? <laughs> Alexa, down. Uh, down. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, what I was going to say is this is essentially taking their four socket design and shrinking it to a smaller form factor. They're using the same link to connect the two chips on one substrate. They have 12 channel memory. Like it, it's essentially a four socket system that will be in a smaller two socket form factor, which actually, well, I mean, has its benefits, but it's not anything groundbreaking. Like you'll be able to achieve probably greater density in a data center, but it's not going to be some weird new level performance we've never seen before. So mm-hmm. that's that to think about. Well, we'll have more to talk about on that shortly i'm sure and we probably should have rearranged these so that the zen one was right after but yeah okay we'll we'll get to that in a moment no let's not because i need a break okay (laughs) well while josh takes a break let's talk about uh another problem here which is a pretty serious issue with ssd firmware encryption why don't you tell us about this jeremy yeah so that that handy little baked in firmware encryption that you're buying your ssds actually exists completely and solely on that SSD and doesn't actually take your own user password or the password that you set up with, say, BitLocker and incorporate it into the encryption. That means every single thing on that disk, and there's quite a few of them, especially the Crucial and Samsung, uh, it's a single key. And so if you pop that drive out, plug into the debug ports, you can very quickly convince it to just accept anything as a valid uh, unencrypting code and unencrypt your stuff. This is utterly and completely brilliant. (laughs) So uh, there were several methods there. So Jeremy's talking about the JTAG thing. Um, But going through the paper, there's a, a lot of enlightening little tidbits in there. Uh, they were using JTAG just to like sort of probe and you know find other exploits, but some of these exploits were you don't even need internal access to the SSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, you, are you talking about the one where it seeds a value on a register at first boot, but the register wasn't readable at first boot, so it sets it to null and then yeah, hashes yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. something like that. Uh, there were other ones. There were other ones where it's like, okay, well, this one drive has a vendor-specific command that's undocumented, but we figured it out because we, you know, dumped the drive's firmware. And like, so if you issue this very unique command with this unique, uh, you know, basically you just try to read from a sector that's not on a disk. Like, that's one example of it, right? But you send it a command that is uh, non-standard, and it just opens up another set of commands, and one of them might just be to dump the entire cryptographic table of the drive. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like here's here's all the keys, basically. Uh, you know, things like that, right? So if it's just it's a, a matter of a combination of uh, not being completely secure it's with com- with a uh, security through obscurity, right? Mm-hmm. Like just trying to do those things, and oh yeah, well you know nobody will ever figure this out. Uh, well, I, and I BitLocker also lying to you because unless you specifically go deep into the settings to turn on software encryption, it claims it's software encrypted, but it's not actually. It's just going off of the hardware. Right, I mean, and that's the other problem is Microsoft's uh, implementation of if you're using uh, uh, BitLocker on drives, right, and it sees that the drive supports Opal, then, oh, fine, that drive supports Opal. I'll just to- totally entrust in that drive's ability to be secure, which honestly 
It's, that's it what should, it should do. It should well, be. Well, I, mean, I understand the assumption, um, but you know, and and that does, and in its defense, the, the whole point of that is so that if, especially if you're on a mobile system, uh, for many cases, SSDs will pass all incoming and outgoing data through some form of crypto engine anyway. Uh, whether or not you have a password set, just usually it has its own, you know, preset key or whatever. But the engine is usually there. It's in hardware. It's basically zero overhead uh and you wouldn't want you know if, if that was there and it was secure then you wouldn't necessarily want uh bitlocker to start using this you know cpu heavy uh crypto and try to pass all disk io through the cpu because even in even in accelerated form that is more power consumption uh you know just more overhead on on the host um see but but i would i would argue the other way you know, having the encryption hardware and the encryption keys bound physically to the device uh-huh. is just right off the crank seems bad. Uh, I agree with you, no, but there the, are secure the, ways the, to do it. The thing here right. is that Opal shouldn't just be a set of specifications from the trusted computing group. It should be a certification process. Yeah, right. Where someone is actually looking at this firmware. Yes. Or or maybe they have a open source Opal implementation that people can vet. That is an example implementation that then people like like Crucial and Samsung and Intel and everybody can go implement. Mm. Yeah. Instead um, of just being a black box that nobody apparently ever checks up on. Now, I, I, I know they only mentioned uh, Crucial and Samsung here. I'd venture a guess that probably other companies are vulnerable. They might have either, either other companies were much harder to crack and they just kind of gave up or they only got this far. And we're just like, holy crap, look at all the nuggets of information we have here. This is probably enough for a paper as it is, because that paper is pretty lengthy and goes into a bunch of different methods that, you know, a bunch of different vulnerabilities. And then there were plenty of uh, plenty of forks in the road as you're walking through that paper. They were just like, this could also be possible, but we just didn't like that was just too exhaustive for this paper. But there were just plenty of other avenues where it could have been even worse. Uh, we just don't know because they didn't go down that road, but presumably, you know, based on what you see and how vulnerable some of these things are and how easily they were vulnerable, uh, those other avenues they didn't, uh, pursue would probably also be fruitful. Is <laughs> just my guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but Ken's totally right. You, you really need a certification with like source code review and firmware review, uh, to, for it to be completely trusted, um for any kind of a you know security thing the the most troubling of those in that list is the t3 and the t5 from samsung which are just external drives because that's the thing where you really are worried about uh you know it's a way more likely people will have encryption enabled uh, on and, those devices and people and there's that t3 access. and t5 <laughs> oh, left it on yeah. the train oh boy <laughs> um, yeah so i mean obviously this is this is a disaster for uh, enterprise, large customers, a lot of you know that for yeah for our well, home user, either trusted simply the encryption on the drive or in trusted BitLocker. Yeah, right. If you go for software encryption, that uh, or you tweak BitLocker to specifically avoid detecting uh, firmware encryption acceleration on a drive, you're good. You're good. Okay. Because I know uh, that, where you can put it on top of it, so that you can encrypt it via the firmware and put yeah. a software layer on top of it. Okay, which BitLocker, you know, is a bad idea. Bitlocker really should just have like some sort of a trust no one option, 
Mm. Yes, it should. Where it just, you know, don't pay any attention to Opal, <laughs> right? And Jeremy's talking about a tweak. I don't know. I didn't know, even know there was a tweak, but presumably there's oh, probably you, some. If you screw on in PowerShell, we figured it out. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully you can... just disable BitLocker because it's annoying. Hopefully you can yeah. apply it over group policy because yeah, right. there's going to be a you lot can. of machines <laughs> deployed that need that oh, yeah. change now. Yep. All right. So, and, so and BitLocker on encryption always goes well. <laughs> so there are there are options to m- mitigate the damage or protect yourself uh, until something something can be figured out here. Trust oh, no one. Of course. Yep. Uh, next up, we got some uh, some new compute cards from AMD. Uh, they're pretty. Pretty interesting looking. <laughs> the AMD Radeon Instinct is—is it, is it pronounced MI sixty or is it MI? Ma- M- yeah. Okay, so the MI sixty and the MI fifty accelerator cards. These are seven nanometer, seven nanometer Vega based cards that uh, Josh alluded to a couple weeks ago on the show. That these are the, some of the, the seven nanometer Vega parts heading into enterprise and and uh, you know high end workstations. Uh, so, uh, what, what do you got for us here on the, on this one, Jeremy? Well, I, according to AMD's specs and the tests that they got someone to do, that MI60 is currently the fastest PCIe uh, HPC card on the planet. Edging it out the, is, uh, the Tesla V100? That's what they claimed that it was slightly faster than. They're, they're claiming 7.4 teraflops at FP64, and the Tesla V100 does 7 even. Take this with a grain of salt, of course, because no one's actually got them hands on these cards to test. But mm-hmm. uh, it will be interesting to see because regardless, it is an impressive amount of double precision performance. It also introduces PCIe Express 4.0, oh. which before you get really excited is not going to help you in your gaming because it's that's not really the bottleneck. But if you're into deep learning and development and stuff, this is actually pretty huge. Uh, and it's part of how it's not only able to do this, but they can set it up into uh, fancy little uh, hives. So the, the idea with this is that because they're us- utilizing AMD's new Infinity Fabric to link the GPUs, and as you see in the picture there, there's uh, four of them all squished together, you can actually set up uh, two hives, each having HGPUs servers in them. Uh, with the help of their new Rockm 2.0 software, which other people than I know a bit more about. But it, it's just a huge jump compared to what AMD has previously offered on their sort of high-end uh, deep learning and just you know productivity carts. So it's going to be really interesting to see what benchmarks look like uh, the beginning of next year when they're starting to expect to uh, arrive on scene. Now, AMD's uh, big... You know, one of the big things they've always had in their favor uh, compared to Intel and NVIDIA is, is price advantage. Do we have any information on how these will compare price-wise to NVIDIA's options? I did not see anything. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there were rumors. I didn't spot any. Okay. These are the type of products you don't generally get pricing for. Yeah. but Because uh, if, you, if you have to ask what the price is, <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah. afford it. Uh, Josh, I know you were watching the keynote uh, I sure was yesterday. They. I, I couldn't quite catch it. They mentioned Infinity Link in the context of Epic. So, can you use Infinity or sorry, Infinity Fabric, Infinity Fabric, Link. Infinity Fabric instead of PCI Express on an Epic platform? Okay, we we don't know a whole lot of the details here. Uh, Infinity Fabric, I, I think, 
is not PCI Express, but it's kind of similar. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like uh, the ARM C6, CCIX, Mm -hmm. that's based on PCI Express, except that they use different protocols on top of that to do things like, um, you know, coherency in, in terms of cash and uh, just kind of improve communication, not just using a regular PCIe, you know, link. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's protocol over PCIe, but it's not PCIe. So do you understand? Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. And so Infinity Fabric is, is different, though. It's not PCIe-based. And it's, as far as I know, it's not hypertransport-based either. Uh, because there were some inefficiencies and bad things with hypertransport as well. But I think this is based on the C-Micro stuff. But Infinity mm. Fabric has been designed in not just Zen, but in the original Vega parts. But it was not really fully utilized in Vega, uh, except, of course, with the Zen 2000 series APUs. Yeah. So that actually had, I mean, Vega's had infinity fabric for you know when it was designed from the ground up and so we're now seeing this now in in theory you can attach to a substrate a bunch of zen cores and then have a vega stuck in there and it can all communicate through infinity fabric i mean it's it's obviously not as easy as you know plugging in legos but It's 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 the same thing. I mean, it's you're using that same kind of protocol to communicate in between chips at a a, a high bandwidth, low latency type interconnect. And so, um, yeah, in theory, you can you could have a substrate where you have a couple of Zen two cores and then the I/O core and then some Vega chips in there, and you can have this really high teraflop chip that's socketed. Whether or not they do that, I, I don't know. But um, the new instincts and the Vega Seven nanometer is a is a it's a big jump from their previous products because they're doubling the HBM two bandwidth. Uh, they've also got double the amount of HBM two. I mean, it's a, it's a significant redesign, but not without you know redesigning the entire house. I mean, it's just just. You know, they use a lot of the basics, they've added to it, and it's a better part. But I think the biggest problem that AMD has is software and Mm -hmm. developer input because Mm -hmm. NVIDIA has an amazing DevRel group, and especially with CUDA and universities and teaching the people who are going into the workforce how to use CUDA in their university and in their classrooms. And that translates to the next generation of workers going into companies saying, Hey, we can get better efficiency. We can really hammer on uh, performance. We can, we can do things that our competitors are not because I have these basic skill sets that I learned in college based on CUDA. And that's going to translate into actual money for the company that I'm working for. And that's that's what AMD is fighting against, and yeah. it's it's a big uphill battle because Nvidia was really really quite clever in how they introduced yeah. CUDA, and especially in into the universities and gave them a lot of money because universities 
like money. Yeah. Now they have been making some road, uh, some inroads. Inroads. There you go. English. There you have it. Uh, and as Jeremy alluded to, they announced Rockham 2.0. Uh, Rockham being their CUDA equivalent, essentially their sort of GPU acceleration SDK. Uh, and they announced it's going to be mainstreamed to the Linux kernel, which is big. Because right now, mm-hmm. setting up Rockham, Rockham, it's not difficult, but it's not great. It's another step you have to do. So if you just have an AMD GPU plugged in and start running code on it, it'd be a pretty good, pretty good step. But they, they also were working with like TensorFlow and Google. Yeah, I, I've and been, that's... That's I've been big. messing a little around with the TensorFlow. They have an upstreamed port that is essentially OpenCL for TensorFlow, which is huge. That had, that didn't exist six months ago, really. So no, times are changing, and for a good thing yeah. because we need more competition in this marketplace. Oh yeah. Well, staying on the AMD and competition theme. AMD what if had, I don't want to stay on the AMD theme? Well, we're there. Uh, they had a uh, big event uh, this week. Uh, yesterday, was it? Mm-hmm. I'm losing track of time. Uh, they uh, had a big event where they talked about their new Epic Rome series processors. Uh, we've got uh, – uh, Josh, you, you covered that for us, but we don't have anything written. Yeah, uh, Tim right? actually posted something. Oh, yeah. Right. It's in the it's in the mm-hmm. show notes. He just posted it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. One second. But I think both Josh and I were kind of keeping up with this event yesterday as we were going on. Yeah, we're we're live tweeting it. Yeah. Which is not nearly as good as actually writing a stinking article. <laughs> well, you know. Seems to be what people are saying anyway. Well, Look th- at that thanks, beautiful uh, CPU. <laughs> Look yeah. at it. That's awesome. That's 128 threads, 64 cores. It's crazy. Each of those little chiplets is two CCXs huh. wow. of Zen 2 technology. It's almost like they, they doubled uh, you know, how many they can fit within a given amount of space. Yes, they've, they've, the 7 nanometer process is, is kind of impressive in terms of density, but we don't know enough about this yet to kind of start guessing about um, what they've actually included in these Zendu cores. So yeah, that big, the big, big thing in the middle is, is the DDR4 controllers, uh, a lot of PCI Express, and Infinity Fabric. So if you think of each of those individual cores being able to communicate not with just themselves, but with that middle chip, I mean, the amount of pads that that substrate has <laughs> is is going to be really, yeah. really stinking impressive. And we don't know how many PCI Express uh, lanes are coming off of this. We do know it's it's eight memory controllers. And so that's a lot of pins and pads as well. It's just uh, – it's it's kind of an impressive product. And, and that thing is that in the middle part, it's a 14-nanometer I.O. And so not only does it have PCIe – and memory controllers and infinity fabric, but I'm kind of wondering if it doesn't have some L4 cache, mm-hmm. you know, a large amount of mm-hmm. L4 cache embedded in that because each of those eight stinking, you know, CPU cores with two CCXs a piece, um, there's going to be a lot of memory access. And if you throw a big chunk of L4 in there, it's going to solve a lot of bandwidth and latency problems right off the bat. Yeah. So until we find out more about this, it's 
there's a lot that we could talk about. I mean, um, it, it it's a big physical chip, right? Yeah, like, it's as big as the current Threadripper, yeah. I mean, which, as you know, is massive. And what takes up a lot of area? Cash. True. Yes, it does. <laughs> Did yeah, this- and so, I mean, this has, like, what, 256 megs of L3 cache that we know of. Wow. And they're not even telling us if there's any L4 in there. And mm. if I'm a betting man, and I'm not particularly, but I, I think that there is going to be L4 in there just because that's going to improve efficiency. Going to an L4 cache, even though it is not as efficient as going to L3, uh, when you start doing, you know, talking about snooping and and cache coherency and main memory accesses, you're going to gain a lot of performance if you got L4 in that big old chip in the middle. And if you think of how much space memory controllers and PCIe controllers and that stuff takes, it's not very much. So why is that chip so big? Yeah. It's it's a really it seems like a just a really good use of resources, right? So they're they're pushing the seven nanometer node, TSM TSMC seven nanometer node on the on the CPU cores, on the part they need to, and then relying on more tried and true 14 nanometer wafers they can get much cheaper at this point for yeah. the less important, less critical stuff that wouldn't really see an advantage being on a 7 nanometer node. This is correct. And, I mean, each of those uh, Zen 2 cores is, is tiny. I mean, it's like 73 to 75 millimeters square. Wow. Which is, that's what, less than half of what, uh, uh, you know, a 14 nanometer or 12 nanometer uh, Zen, Zen Plus, or whatever you want to call it, core is. Um, we do have other questions. Um, are these the chips that you're going to see in desktop Zen 2 processors? I don't think so. I think that they probably stripped a lot of that stuff out, a lot of the I.O., memory controllers, things like that, and have dedicated probably just... Infinity Fabric PCIe lanes, yeah, and that's that's it. I mean, it's it's very very focused. So I I because they're releasing these relatively quickly. I mean, like the first of the year, but we're not going to see desktop Zen two parts until Q three end of first maybe. half twenty nineteen. Yeah. So I I'm, I'm wondering if they're not in fact two totally different chips, one with more IIO capabilities that. You know, it reflects back on the the original Zen, which has SATA controllers and, and memory controllers and all that. I mean, why if you're if you're really pushing into the epic world, why would you want to include on that on 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 every die all that functionality which you're not going to use because you've got this big I/O chip yeah. in the middle that's handling all that. Yeah. Well, I, th- so they did earlier in the day. They showed. I mean, it was more of an artistic thing, right? Where they had the they had the two the two sort of CPU core chips and then the I.O. control in the middle. So I can maybe see that being more of a consumer configuration where you have, I, mean, I, I guess, four CCXs total. It makes sense. I mean, if they're going to go through all this work to go through and re-engineer and re-architect this whole system from the existing Zen architecture, which pretty much was the same kit, just pile more of them on there <laughs> i mean it works it works fine so they go through all this and they move to this chiplet architecture they already have existing 14 nanometer stuff works fine the you know cache coherency all that stuff's pretty well proven out 
And they move to a chiplet design, and they lead with the epic, the room. But if they already invest all this time into it, why not have a single chiplet or two chiplet variant with a reduced I.O. controller, but keep the same architecture? Have that scalability from the, the low end, single chiplet, all the way up to the, I mean, how many are on there? There's eight. Well, that's supposed to be one of the advantages of the Infinity Fabric in the first place. Right. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Your, your mesh, your underlying mesh is there, and that's well-proven, and it's seems to be pretty well-proven to be scalable, so yeah, why not stick to it? Well, I mean, well, how just, many chips do you actually want to design if you're AMD? Not, I mean, obviously, the answer to that is the lowest number possible. So you do an I.O., you do a chiplet, and then you do the desktop, which then you mod into the APU. Yeah, versus what you're talking about. So, I mean, where does that balance in in design resources that you have as AMD and how much money you can throw at the problem? What is the perfect number of of parts for each generation that you can really introduce at the same time being able to potentially overcome any advantages that, that Intel will throw at you because they've got better manufacturing in theory more design capabilities and they want to use probably bigger monolithic chips because that's kind of Intel. I mean, what's what, uh, where's the balance point here? And I think Mm. we're going to find that out obviously in the next eight months. But I, I just think that AMD is betting a lot of money on being really, really, really competitive in the data center because that's an area that is still going to grow. And it's an area that is worth a lot of money. And if they think that they can get with a more specialized design with this big I.O. chip in the middle and be able to offer an amazing amount of threads, really good yields. I mean, really good yields because each of those chips is is really small. So Mm -hmm. yields and bins are probably going to be really, really good for those chips versus a one large 700 millimeter square die. And I think that they're going about this in a really clever way. But we're going to have to see if if the market reacts to them as well as they're hoping to. I mean, I I, I think I think they're going to have some success here, and they're 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 leveraging a a better process technology than what Intel can do until the end of 2019. So they have a real window of opportunity to do some really neat things, and I think they're going about it in a really clever way. And I think that they're going to make some some good money and they're going to make some inroads. But it's going to be that past 2019 area that is going to be the question. I think that Intel is going to take a while to to kind of react to what AMD has been showing off. And uh, I don't know. It's a big company. They've got a lot of money. They can they can if they choose to, they can they can turn on a dime. I mean, we look at the Pentium 4 to Conroe. I mean, they just said, okay, we're going to, you know, Tejas. Okay, screw Tejas. These Israeli <laughs> guys have got really something amazing here. We're going there, and We've been there had two years, yeah, they two have, years they have been there of, of time where yeah. they could really, you know, take advantage of, of what they did in terms of design until, until Intel struck back with the Core 2. 2019 is going to be a busy year. It is. Mm-hmm. 2018 was a busy year. True. 
<laughs> well, I can't wait for the ashes of the Singularity benchmark on that chip. <laughs> uh, all right, last item up, we got a uh, uh, 15, a new benchmark, I guess. Is this is the biggest consumer drive, Alan? It's not a consumer drive. I mean, it's just the biggest like drive you can go buy at a store. Uh, no, that's not true either. Okay. <laughs> you can't even buy it, really. because oh. So this is going to be, it's shingled magnetic right. recording. It's right. SMR, yeah. And, and it's an enterprise drive. But it's, this is going to be uh, 15 terabytes. Let's get that out. Yes, of 15 terabytes, uh, 7200 RPM. Uh, it's a Ultra Star. It's now Western Digital Ultra Star. Yeah, that's the that's transformation weird. is complete mm-hmm. now. Um, uh, DC HC 620. Uh, so they now make that drive in 15 terabytes. Uh, there is a. If you don't want shingled magnetic recording, you have to drop to 12 terabytes. So it's about like a 25% gain that they get now from going SMR. Look Um, at the size of that buffer. uh, Pretty big buffer. uh, Half a a gig (laughs) now. We're not even to a gig. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, So realize you have – this is a now host-managed SMR. So it's they're not even they're just moved away from the whole the drive will try to behave adequately if you gave it just a standard workload and it'll just try to make it SMR. No, now it's just you have to write to this thing sequentially uh, in a specific way with a specific understanding of, you know, how your application is coded that's doing the writing to these drives. So if you want to do any kind of a random workload or a random write to one of these it has to be somehow packaged in some form where the drive sees it sequentially um so that it can just continue with the specific shingled write mm-hmm. that it's doing is that supported um, out of the box by the os or is that drivers no it's it's the, the guys that are using drives like these have coded their own back ends that are doing the writing to these drives yeah. so they're not they're not even using like raid specific controllers they're just using jbod controllers just get all the drives connected to the system the software layer that whoever the company is has developed be it facebook or you know facebook google whoever they're going to set something up that's going to handle all of the you know redundancy and writing to multiple disks or across multiple arrays or you know spaces or whatever um and also they just need to do it in a way that's sequential uh, so that these drives can behave properly when they're doing the writes, because as it turns out, you can you can read from a narrower track than what you can write, which is what the, gives these drives this advantage. They're just like, well, if we just scoot the head over a half or three quarters of a track worth, as opposed to going over one full track worth with enough gap between them for a regular, you know, to not overwrite the the adjacent tracks, uh, you know. As it turns out, if you just decide to overlap them as you're writing them, when you come back and read, you can still read from the slimmer tracks that you've created um, with that previous write. So that's just kind of how that stuff works. Um, we're still not to the point. I know it's uh, Jeremy wrote this, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. No, so, that was no, Tim. Tim. Oh, that was Tim. Tim. Yeah. So Tim's longing for the upcoming days of uh, Mammer and uh, Hammer. Hammer and stuff like that. Um, this has got to be one of the last SMR drives that we're going to be seeing. Uh, so I don't know really how that's going to happen because even with Mammer, you can wait, still wait, do would SMR. Did you just say ASMR? No. Drives? Oh, I, I did. I'm going to 
No, I no, 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 no. Ken's gonna, uh, or, uh, Josh is gonna record. Josh is gonna record really just hard drive AMS ASMR. <laughs> it's just the hard drive on a table in front of the microphone, just seeking. Right, and then you can do a video for each different hard drive. Actually, I need to go through the old box of hard drives now. We need to do like Velociraptor ASMR. Let's, let's edit this out of the podcast. Let's see the idea. This is YouTube goal. Somebody's gonna do it. We're gonna right? be hundred airs. But at some point, unpredictable now, during that recording will be a sudden hammer. And now, and now I'm gonna do a defrag. Listen to this one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, just those are after T-Frag. It's just like... All right. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, when those things come, uh, they're not necessarily going to just all of a sudden we don't need shingled. You you can still stand to get that sort of a benefit from shingled because you can, you'll still be able to read a narrower track than you can write. It's just that with something like Mammer, you'll be able to write to a much narrower track. Um but some of the hurdles they're dealing with on that, like Western Digital is already doing that. Like they showed it to Ryan and I, uh, what, a year ago now, flew us out to California and, and showed us. And there were, they had, not only did they brief us on it, but they had like product actually doing it. Um, it's just that to get the higher densities, now the, the bottleneck for advancement is uh, sputtering technology of like how they can make the media able to handle writing tracks that much narrower so you just need to make the domains smaller the magnetic domains on the media smaller now so now it's like oh crap we solved this one problem now we have to spend years developing this you know advancing this other part of the technology so that we can actually uh get the the benefits um yeah so expect that to ease in so it's not like the first mammer drive you see is going to be one platter 20 terabytes and no need for shingled or anything like that. It's going to still be a progressive thing just based on the media advances. Sure. And Unfortunately, and I'd really like just some breakthrough and just, you know, oh, here's this 50 terabyte two and a half inch laptop hard drive. The world couldn't handle that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then your window installer would go to like five terabytes. Six years. Yeah, yeah. And then the Windows installer would immediately be five terabytes. The uh, the chat does remind me that you can buy twenty terabyte USB thumbsticks on AliExpress. Oh, absolutely. Totally. You, you can. It's like twenty bucks. You can just keep writing, no problem. Yeah. Just don't yeah. ever, don't ever, just don't look. Just don't look. Don't just no. don't write more than like four meg, <laughs> or just don't care about what you write beyond that four meg. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get into the picks of the week. Uh, Jeremy's up first with a motherboard for us. Yeah, I mean, it's that time of the year again where you're sort of trying to figure out cheap gifts for the people that you pretend to care about. And, you know, a BFIT 450 board is a great way to set someone up with an upgraded system that they can't break very easily. And at uh, the deal that they're having right now, at least on uh, the Canadian version, uh, it's going to be cheaper in america but 90 bucks and this thing has freaking everything you're you're possibly going to want if you have the money to put an m.2 in there away you go uh it's it'll support decent ddr4 up to 3200 uh, megahertz and i mean it's just got a fair amount of features for what you're going to get or at least what you should be expecting to get at an 80 dollar price point also doesn't look that bad either yeah, it's a nice looking board. Yeah, it's a nice looking board. Asrock has done some good things with AM4. Yeah. Yeah. It's rising 2000 
series ready, so you don't have to worry about it. Well, the only thing that's lacking is like Wi-Fi, and most people are would consider that a benefit. <laughs> All right. Now, Josh didn't have his pick in, so I've got to bring that up. I now. do too. What about you? Didn't at the beginning when I got my tabs oh. all wrong. All right. Uh, what do you got, Josh? So you know, higher quality G-Sync monitors are finally getting into price points where people will consider buying. And this, unfortunately, I missed the sale last week. It was like two hundred bucks off this eight ninety nine price. So it was six hundred ninety nine bucks for a fourteen forty panel, thirty four inch wide. It's not HDR. But it's G Sync and it's a hundred megahertz. No, hundred one twenty. Hundred hertz. Hundred megahertz. Sorry, 100 Holy hertz. shit! No, it's hundred <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? It's hundred hertz, but you can overclock it to hundred twenty hertz. Some people have had good things with that, not. But uh, you know, it's it's just a really nice if you want to replace your three monitor system with something that's G Sync. It's not going to kill you or make your wife kill you. Then this is a nice, it's a nice product, and I think uh, in the back it's it's got the um, it's got the buy of the not the buy yeah the the LED stuff Ooh, in the back, so you can program that's pretty that. Pretty cool looking. So if you're in a dark room, mm. you've got the LEDs in the back doing doing the backlight bias. So and you can program that to do different you know effects and whatnot. So it's it's a really sharp looking unit. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I mean, it's it's a also lot of Visa mountable. Yeah. A yeah. lot of gaming products have styling that's a little just it's too much. And this this is aggressive, but, you know, kind of classy. It's classy. Yeah. <laughs> Look at I that. I like classy. Nice. It's got a nice curve to it, 1800R, I think. But, yeah, it's uh, it's one of the you know, shockingly less expensive large G-Sync monitors out there, and it's got plenty of features. Yeah, nine hundred bucks. Yeah. Not too bad. And it is a further advancement over like what was previously like the Acer Predator. Uh, I forget which one that just the X thirty four or something. There was an Acer yeah Predator monitor, but it realized those previous ones uh, that are similar to this maxed out at a hundred hertz. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one gives you another twenty, which is impressive. And those were twelve hundred dollars or yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. So well, technically, so we're this, getting down there. This is uh, technically fifteen hundred MSRP, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, we'll, but if you know. catch it, you know, I mean, there's more sales coming up, no doubt. I wouldn't yep. be surprised if this mm-hmm. monitor dipped back down to that same price. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've played with one of those Acer ones. It didn't look this good, at least you know, in my opinion. So yeah, the Acer design is just really kind of like they do that shiny black stuff. Mm-hmm. They like to do that, um, especially on the back of the Predator. Yeah. Like that shows scratches and fingerprints like you wouldn't imagine. So if you have your desk in a setup where you can actually see the back of your monitor, it's like nowhere yep. near as sharp looking as that as that alienware. Nice, nice. Yeah. All right. Uh Ken's got something for us. Yeah, just a quick one. Uh they announced at BlizzCon uh last week, I guess it was, that uh they're as part of the Battle.net gifts program, uh Destiny two for PC is free through November eighteenth. Now, it's a convoluted way you have to claim this. You have to go into the Battle.net client and click on the gifts button, tab, whatever, and accept it. But then you'll own the game in perpetuity. It's the base game on the expansions, but you want to give it a try. It's a really damn good-looking game that scales scales really well on all hardware. Like It scales down well. It scales up well. If you have, happen to have HDR, it looks amazing, and it's pretty fun, too. 
Awesome. And that'll, Free games. Uh, that'll keep people off of a, or keep their minds distracted from something else that may have been not well received at BlizzCon? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking okay. about. <laughs> oh, come on. Warcraft 3 needed a remake. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> they should have remade Warcraft 2 first. Come on. Yeah, you're not wrong. Missed opportunities. Oh, hang on one second. I got to. No, I already had that Let's one. Got to open another link. There. Okay, so. Alan. All right, so I tried this and I thought it was a fail, and then I tried it again, and it wasn't. Hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, there's those battery packs you can get, and some of them are claimed to be powerful enough to be able to jumpstart your car, and usually they are not, and they, like, blow up because you're trying to use just a regular lithium battery and try to jumpstart a car <laughs> off of it. What could, um, possibly go wrong? what could possibly go wrong? What if you could jumpstart your car just by using the remaining power left in your dead battery? If only you had like a some sort of voltage booster, a capacitor, and a, and a set of ultra capacitors, uh, and at sort of a reasonable price point. Because if you try to, there's people that make ultra capacitor car batteries, but they're like three hundred bucks for with a capacity to what, like suitable what, to what replace. If, what if what if you got a super cap? Well, it's a bank of them. It's like six, I think. I haven't opened I haven't opened up that box. It's like six, six. So um, so what this is is it's a super cap. Uh, like a bank Super cap. Uh, with this special module that can accept input from either there's like an adapter with a cigarette lighter plug thing or it can just use the jumper cable style like the alligator clips connected to your existing battery or there's even if you're willing to wait like a half an hour uh, there is a micro USB in so and it will accept five volts. Via micro USB. Uh, and I confirmed this and it it charged itself over the course of a half an hour up all the way from nothing all the way up to 14 and a half volts um with enough power behind it to jumpstart my gti the only catch was that my battery was good but dead so if i tried to connect it to the battery directly it would immediately start dumping the super caps into the battery <laughs> and by then by the time i can like run around and get in the car and go to crank it there was just barely enough to actually turn the thing over more than a you know couple of revs right uh so then i tried again later and i just disconnected my battery before and i just hooked it right up to the mm-hmm. terminals in the car and uh jump started the car no problem um so that might How be the only work on a tesla uh <laughs> it would it would actually so here's the thing that's funny uh teslas have a 12 volt battery and if that battery oh. goes dead you can't drive the car it will not fire up even though it has, it's even though you're sitting on a huge battery pack, uh, you can't get to it because it, it, there's not enough 12 volt power to shut the contactor to connect the big battery to the rest of the car. So this is the kind of thing that would uh, even jumpstart a Tesla. It would In take, other news, Alan you know, will be out tomorrow to take his car to the Tesla dealer for service. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so interesting idea. Just you know, note to self: like if your battery is dead you might need to disconnect the battery and just like, you know, so that it doesn't get in the way of you trying to jumpstart off of the, the super cap bank. How much interrogation time can you get out of full charge on this interrogation time? Yeah. Can you, yeah. can you swip those apart so that they're, uh, you know, you, you can actually reach both nipples with the clamps. <laughs> it looks like it. <laughs> yes. They split apart. Oh, good. Yes, oh, good. yes they, they split apart su- a sufficient distance. Uh-huh. 
Although I'd like to have a serial in peril mode switch if I was going to use it for that. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, I, th- I thought it was interesting that you could, you know, uh, it's a solid idea. You know, you just need something to boost the voltage. And even if you're using the, the remnant, you know, if your car battery's down to like five volts or something, it'll still, you know. It's all transformation, man. Yeah, it's just, you know, boost up to a higher voltage with enough oomph behind it to, to crank the starter a couple times, right? And uh Solid idea. And there's nothing to really degrade here. You don't have to worry about like, you know, because I had a uh, like a lithium jumpstart kind of thing in my GTI as like a backup. Um, And I even had brought it back in the house and tried to charge it and go figure it's been in the car for like two years in the heat and the cold. And that pack is just dead. Doesn't work anymore. There's nothing really to degrade here. So this thing stays dead until you charge it up off of the dead battery. <laughs> kind of oh. interesting. Well, uh, a couple people in the chats said it this doesn't look like a good idea. So, I mean, it, it works. We it's just, we, we you know, are not endorsing not the Amazon generator all over again. <laughs> but, yeah. but if you're interested, yeah. if you're interested, uh, check that out. Uh, and uh, Sebastian, you've got a pick for us. Oh, you're muted. Uh, oh, no, he's muted. He's muted. 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 All right, I'm, I'm unmuted now. You can hear my <laughs> wonderful furnace noises. My pick is for a Sound Blaster product. It is not this Sound Blaster, which is the classic Sound Blaster 16. Ooh, or 16 ISA, ISA port. Oh. Wow, and it's got the little little adjustment volume knob on it, too? Oh, Ooh. it does. Oh, yeah. It has the volume knob. Wait, which Check is so out. convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Use check it out. Look at it. Game port. Game port. And this one actually does not suffer from the hanging notebook because it has firmware revision four oh five. Ooh. Um but actually it is this sound blaster product which this upside is not a down. perfect device. It's not a perfect device. Listeners <laughs> <laughs> of the podcast don't know that, Alan. Until now. <laughs> but this, this interesting thing is a USB device. It's a it's a sound card, but it also has like line level inputs, a phono input. Oh. It has a built-in phono preamp. It has optical digital input and output. Well, it actually has a old joystick into headphone amplifier too. How we'll was the uh, how was the latency? I'm always concerned with latency over those USB connected uh, sound devices because they usually add something over the PCI version. What I was using this for was basically just capturing from a turntable. I was digitizing some vinyl that's not available digitally. And when I was listening to it in real time as I recorded, there was no perceptible lag. Okay. But it's hard to say because yeah. this was I was using this as the phono preamp and it it did a very good job. It's very very quiet. Yeah, because you know, you can totally see what the needle is is doing in terms of sound and what's hitting your ears. Well, I mean, there's the whole like the the needle drop and like the the you know, yeah. you hear oh, the noise okay. from the vinyl. Listen, Josh, Sebastian can hear these things. He can. <laughs> I can I can hear And besides when it's throbbing yes, gristle, it is kind of hard to hear the, the latency. Sebastian doesn't even see the vinyl. He just sees peaks, valleys, stereo. There, it, there uh, is no vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're immersed in a well-set-up uh, living room 
speaker system then no the speakers disappear and you're transported into a magical three-dimensional realm of audio goodness yeah but i do not i do not have that and in fact i don't even have a turntable set up right now because i have a three-year-old child who's extremely destructive so hence the idea hey why don't i digitize some of these records i can't listen to any other way this thing does a good job it's a hundred dollars but if you're if you're using it for pc audio it will drive any headphones it supports high resolution 600 audio. ohms yes yeah. it does support 600 ohms uh if you are a sennheiser fan wait no i'm thinking of the 600s for like 300 ohms but anyhow it has a good reputation for driving headphones the issue with it as far as playback is concerned is even though there are dual oscillators on the uh board it only implements the 48 kilohertz uh, oscillator. For some, I don't know why it's even on there. Uh, you can see a rant about that at IXBT.com's <laughs> review of it from like 2014. But everybody who's reviewed it has basically complained about the same thing. You cannot set it to 44.1 in software, 88.2. And if you're into high-resolution digital audio, some of the stuff is mastered at like 24-bit 44.1. Uh, modern pop music is often mastered that way because it's like basically with Crap. streaming in mind, they don't need anything higher than 44.1. But this will not do that. It upsamples it to 48. So you lose, you know, the original formatting. Sample rate but conversion is the devil. It is. And it makes things it sound really kind of muddies soft the muddy. audio stream. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I will be happy to live with like 44.1. I, I'm not going to be a snob and say I have to have 96 or 192, which I I, was, I can't even hear the difference. Uh, 96, 24 is great. 44 is great, too, if it's well-mastered, but it has to be played back at 44.1. And most onboard sound cards play everything at 48, above or below. So it, everything gets resampled as you're listening to it through the DSP. And unfortunately, this one does, too. It It plays back 96 fine. And forty-eight, but it's resampling anything that's forty-four-one. So, so that's that's the drawback. And and there are products like the iFi Nano IDSD LE, which are way better for playback, but they are fifty dollars more expensive, and it basically only does playback. You can't do capture. So if you want capture, and you want to use a laptop to capture, like I was, which is pretty much essential because when the laptop was plugged in to power, I was getting a ground hum. So it needs to be something battery powered. It'll do great capture from analog sources like vinyl. If you're a hipster and have vinyl records for some reason, so. Well, I mean, the the ability to, to directly record straight off the turntable at phono level, it's totally worth the hundred bucks. I mean, considering otherwise I mean, you'd have to do like a separate phono preamp and then an analog to digital converter. And the ADC in this is is good. It's the Cirrus Logic fifty three sixty one, which is well known. It's it's a good chip, mm. and it'll it'll do like your native twenty four ninety six final rips, and it's it sounds very very good. And the phono preamp built into this, I don't know if it's doing it through software or how it's doing it, but it actually is very flat. It sounds good, so no complaints. All right, awesome. Thank you. Uh, I guess that's just me left. So I've got a pick. Uh, where did it go? Gosh, Somewhere in your tabs. 
I don't know what's happening. There it goes. Can I don't know what's going on. Okay, so it is November 7th as we're recording this. may not be when you're listening to it, but November 7th is N7 Day. What does that mean? Mass Effect. Oh, man, I should really pick huh? up that Andromeda game. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, yeah, so in the Mass Effect game and universe, the N7 is the designation of the, the specter soldier that you play. And uh, so November 7th, they have N7 Day, and BioWare does some, some stuff, and the modding community does some stuff. They've been releasing some great mods this week. Um, but to play the mods, you need the game. So if you haven't played the game or if it's been several years, you want to revisit it, uh, it's a great time to do that. You can pick up the whole trilogy for PC, for uh, 24 bucks uh, on disc. You can get it digitally from Origin for, I think, 30 uh, I'm not sure, you know, the pricing there. But uh, it's not bad for three of my hands-down favorite games of all time. It's a wonderful, wonderful sci-fi story. Each game is slightly different. You know, one, like the first one's kind of more role-playing. The second one's more action. The third's uh, action as well, but introduces it's, – it's, you know, it's got more of the story uh, – is that, is that with the expansions or just the base games? That I think that's just the base game. I think you get a couple expansions in there, um, but uh, I think it's just the base. Uh, but yeah, you do want to pick up the expansions. Uh, you don't need the first the expansions for the first game, but the ones for two and three are kind of crucial. There's some big story elements that come in those. Uh, so it's just if you haven't played it and you're a sci-fi fan, you got you just got it. It's, it's an amazing story. It's probably one of the best overall sci-fi stories uh, ever told in gaming. And, uh, yeah, Andromeda came out last year, and it, it really disappointing, but uh, at least I, I thought so. Uh, but the original trilogy is still great. So Zen 7 Day, go check that out. Save the galaxy, fight the Reapers, et cetera. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the show. Um, if you uh, want to get in touch with us, go to pcpro.com slash pod – or sorry, PC, Twitter. All right. <laughs> Go to twitter.com slash pcper or twitter.com slash Ken underscore Addison for this guy. Remember the underscore, unless you want to talk about Jesus. Twitter.com slash podcast, where you can find all our podcasts. Uh, I'm sorry. PCPro.com slash podcast. <laughs> Twitter.com slash podcast. I don't know what it is. <laughs> just, just go there. Just go there. Yeah, of course, See what it all is. All of our writing is at uh, PCPro.com. Right and it's for uh, all, the, uh, all the best hard drive AMSR videos, search Josh Tech at Pornhub. And uh, that's the show for today. We'll see you next week. No, Jim, you need, you need to carry this on for another minute now. Oh. Why is that? Because you have an ad at the end. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. I, no, there's not a post-roll. No, there's, no, no post-roll. there's not a post-roll. There's not? That was a pre-roll. Oh. Yeah. Oh. There's a pre and a mid. Yeah. Never there mind. Cuss Carry on. Cuss it up, boys. <laughs> yeah, let's talk, what's our favorite Pornhorn channels now? Oh, oh boy. No. Uh, <laughs> Ed Podcast is a guy who calls himself Mr. Podcast. So, Ooh. you know. He's only got 2,100 Does he followers. talk about Jesus? Probably. There's always room for Jesus and Jello. We'll see mm. you next week.